It's a very common dream, I guess you could say, a childhood daydream, fantasy, to be thinking about, particularly if you play sports or watch sports or watch the Olympics or watch March Madness, any Super Bowl, whatever it might be. It's, a, it's many children dream about time running out, the last seconds on the clock, and the opportunity to win the game, right? The opportunity to partake in the most important moments you would consider of your life. Whether that's uh, time running out in a basketball game and within the last few seconds there's a play drawn up where you're going to get to take the three-pointer and this is your senior year. It's the pinnacle of your career in the state championship. Or time running out on a field goal and, and the kick goes through the arches as time expires. Or a penalty shot in soccer where you're in stoppage time. You're, you, you know that time is out. You're playing on borrowed time and the score is tied and you have the chance for a penalty kick to be lifted on everyone's shoulder. Th that would be the pinnacle of, of your sporting moment. And what would you do? What would take place in what would be the, the pinnacle of your career? And not just in sports, but if you think about at work or the career that you might have, what, what would it be like to be at the the pinnacle, the top, to not just be the most important day of your life, but actually the most important moments of your career, how would that moment affect you? And what would play out in those moments? The reason I go down that road is you're going to hear an account where Zachariah was a priest, and in what would be the pinnacle moment of his career, something that not every priest gets to experience, certainly would have been the highlight of his religious life. He, he gets this revelation from an angel, and he receives a message, and, and the truths that he understands and hears would not just change his life, but would change the course of human history. And I want us to think about that for a church, this, as a church this morning. And I want us to receive some of the encouragement that certainly Zechariah would have faced. So as we go through these first 25 verses of Luke this morning, you'll notice that Luke is the author of the book, though he's not mentioned. This is universally attested to. And in the first four verses of the book, he's writing down just kind of an introduction. Here's why he wrote the book. He wrote to a man named Theophilus, and he wrote both Luke and the book of Acts as well. And he wanted to write down, in that day, so much exciting stuff had happened with Christ, his death, his resurrection, the birth of the church. There were many historians who were trying to write down, here's what happened. Here's, here's the accounts of things as they played out. That's why we have the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark. And Luke was one of these guys who wanted to write down an orderly account. Others have tried it, and I thought it would be a good idea if I could write down an orderly account. And he wanted Theophilus to have certainty about what took place. And that will encourage us as a church as well, even to have certainty of who Christ is and why Christ came and the truth that matters to our lives. So that's his introduction in the first five verses. And then he says this, in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. And he's going to tell us who Zechariah is. In fact, Zechariah would have had a very special job serving in the temple. And he tells us that Zechariah was a blameless man. He, he was a man, it's not that he was perfect, it's, but it is that you couldn't bring a charge against him. He followed God's law religiously 
religiously. And in fact, his wife Elizabeth did the same. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth were from the lineage of Aaron. And so they were priests who were able to serve in the temple. Historians tell us that there would have been something like 18,000 priests whose job was to serve in the temple. And so as he's explaining who they are, you'll see that uh, in verse 8 it says, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, priests didn't serve in the temple year-round, 52 weeks out of the year. They were split up into many different divisions. If you had 18,000, not everybody could be in the temple. And there were two separate weeks out of the year that you took your shift there in the temple. So Luke wants us to know who Zechariah was. He was a priest who had, uh, uh, he came from the right pedigree, I guess you could say. His, his religious line and heritage being from the line of Aaron, not just him, but also his wife. And then he was blameless religiously. He followed God's law closely. And yet there's sorrow, there's heartache right away for this story because Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children. And this is something that would have been a discouragement in society and culture there. They would have wondered what was wrong with them. It was God judging them. Was this some disgrace that was upon them? And yet Luke takes the time to make sure we know they lived righteously. They, they lived uprightly. This was not some judgment from God. For some reason, they did not have children. And as if that wasn't bad enough, they were advanced in years. Verse 7, they both were advanced in years. Some of your translations say that they were stricken in years. That's a, that's a good way to say they were old. They were stricken. They woke up in the morning and they felt the pains. They felt the strickenness, right? So, so not only did they not have children, there was no turning back the clock. Uh, th this was a hopeless situation because they were advanced in years. Now it came about then that uh, on the week when Zechariah was there at... Uh, serving for his priestly duty, as was the custom of the priesthood. The lot, lots were chosen, and uh, the way that you served, uh, the priest had many different responsibilities, but there was a specific responsibility that was the highest of the responsibilities. This was to offer the, altar, the, the incense offering upon the altar in the holy place. There was only one priestly responsibility that came higher or fell higher on the list of privileges than the incense offering. That was the, the highest of the highest was when one time a year the high priest would enter the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. And that only happened one time a year for the high priest. And yet in the holy place, the incense offering would happen twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And it was such a special privilege that the priest that was chosen by Lot would enter into the holy place, probably have some assistance with them, and there was candles that needed to be attended to in the table of showbread, and then one assistant would probably bring coals from the altar and place them into the, the incense altar. And after the assistants left, this priest would be able to offer incense offering at the altar. The closest, except for the high priest once a year, the closest that any human being could enter in the presence of God under Old Testament Judaism, under the way that the system had been set up. In fact, it was such a special privilege that a priest was only able to do this once in their lifetime. If they were able to, not all priests got to do this, but once they had the opportunity to do it once, they were off the list and they would just attend to other priestly duties and the lot fell, wouldn't you know it, by God's sovereign hand, ordering and directing, 
that Zechariah was chosen to offer this incense offering. What a special privilege. This is something that, that he would have dreamt about. This is something that he would have wondered what it would be like to be in the presence of God in this way. This would have been something that no doubt when he returned home to his wife as he did twice a year for many years. How did your service at the temple go? Good. Catch up on this, that, and the other thing. Can you imagine the excitement? It happened. I was chosen. What was it like? And they would certainly tell stories and just to, to experience. No, no other human got to experience the nearness and closeness to the presence of God in the way that Zechariah was going to get to. Look at verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. By the way, what, what a neat thing it kind of is that here, as, as Zechariah gets to go enter the, the holy place, the people are gathered on the outside of the temple and they're engaged in worship. They're praying at this hour. They, they too wanted to participate. So though they didn't get to experience that closeness, I trust that you came this morning to worship, to be engaged in it in the same way. There's a lot of things that aren't parallel between Old Testament temple worship and for us as believers in the church, but one of, one of the consistent truths is that the people of God participate in worship, that it's not a spectator sport, right? I hope you didn't come to be entertained, because if you did, there's others that can do it better than we can. We want, we want you to be participating. When we go to prayer, you go to prayer. As we read scripture, you read scripture. We worship together just as the people were there waiting as Zechariah entered in. In. And what happens when Zechariah goes in and he offers the incense offering? Well, something remarkable happens. This is something you would not have expected. Right there at the right-hand side of the altar, Luke brings us back. He says, there an angel of the Lord appears. Now, this would have been startling and shocking for anyone to witness. And here's Zechariah. It says that he's greatly afraid. Right? He, 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 he's completely afraid because he's in the presence of God and he sees an angelic being. And what does the angel angel do. He immediately calms his fear and says, do not be afraid. He has a great announcement, right? He says, God has heard your prayers, and though we don't know what he was praying, we know that God had an answer for him. And this was not an answer just about a son to a childless couple, but it was about a salvation of a people. And this was the prayers that God was going to answer. God says that you will have a son, and he will be a joy to you, and many will rejoice. And then he starts borrowing language from Malachi and says that John, that, 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 well, first he says the child's name would be John, and that this child was going to do great things. He would be set apart in some unique ways. There would be very strict rules of things that he was allowed to partake of, and it's not because that was God's standards and expectations for everybody. It's because this child would have a unique role from a very young age. He would be set apart. He would be filled with the Spirit. And through this child, the hearts of fathers would be turned to children. The hearts of the disobedient would be brought into just righteousness. This child was going to accomplish great things, which would result in joy. It would result in uh, incredible things. And the child, it even says, that this child would be great. Well, what was it that made him great? If you remember who John the Baptist was in the story, it's not that he himself was great. He kept pointing the way to the one who truly was great. 
His repeated refrain was, he must increase, I must decrease. He, he kept wanting people to know that there was someone who was, who's, who was so wonderful that John couldn't even get down and unstrap his sandal, right? So what made John great? It was the fact that he pointed the way to Jesus Christ. And that's what, what would bring so much joy. In verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. So Zechariah, he, he's struck with this belief. Give, give me a sign. How am I supposed to know this? But by what way should I? You realize how old old I am. My life is stricken in years, right? I'm old. What's Gabriel's response? Well, I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, right? Uh, old age, standing in the presence of God, which one wins? That's, that's his defense right there, that he, he comes with a message from the Lord, and this is the way it's going to be, and because you didn't believe, you won't be able to speak until these things are accomplished. So, then Luke tells us that even as these things happen, the people are outside waiting. What's going on? Why is it taking so long in there? They would have been twice a day. The priest goes in, the assistants come out, offers the incense, then together they come out to the people and they offer the ironic blessing or they speak the words of the ironic blessing. The Lord be with you and gracious, make his face shine upon you. Well, Zachariah is not coming out. What's taking so long in there? Did he die in there? What's, what's happening? And, and finally, when he comes out, he can't speak. We also wonder if he can't hear, based on later in like verse 60, it, once you get into the 60s, that the people have to make signs to him to figure out what his name could be. So it's possible that he was both deaf and mute. And they gather that he's seen a vision. Oh yes, he saw a vision. And yet they didn't yet know what it was or what it meant. And then he simply says he has to finish off the week of service, right? He didn't get to text Elizabeth and tell her, hey, guess what happened? He, he has to finish out the week of service, and only then when he goes home is he able to speak with his wife. And what is her response then at the end of the narrative in verse 24? After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. She's, she's overjoyed. She's rejoicing that for years she she has wanted a child, and now what God has done for her on her behalf. What, what a joy that is. How, how should we think about this as a people? L let me give you just a few applications as we think about this. I tried to think of a few along the way, but let me back up and catch a few more. Don't miss how significant it is in verse 5. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Luke doesn't give us any detail, but historians go back and fill in the picture. In the days of Herod, for those who lived through the days of Herod, this was not a popular time to be a, a Jew. Uh, th these weren't good days, so to speak. Herod was not the nicest king to live under. He was not the nicest guy. Uh, there was it was going to get worse. Persecution was going to come. But when you think about Herod as a king, he was certainly a very capable king. You can look at his uh, both military conquests and his, his, you can look at the, the way the building projects that took place under Herod. And you think of Herod's rebuilt temple and the, finance, the, the financial taxation upon the people through which he accomplished these massive building projects. And he certainly w was a man of impressive accomplishments, right? And yet there was, there was a twisted, cruel, corrupt side to Herod. You remember when the, uh, the, uh, at the announcement of Jesus, when 
uh, he went through the land killing all boys two years old and under. He was a man who was continually worried about his kingdom and authority being usurped, such that he had one of his own wives killed, several of his sons killed, and he was going to have all the little boys in Bethlehem killed because he heard that the king of the Jews had been born, and he wanted to be the king of the Jews. And, and he was a man who was corrupt. He was a man who uh, was not somebody that was on the who's who's list of godly kings, even though he rebuilt the temple and saw himself in uniquely God's chosen vessel. I say that simply to say that in the days of Herod, when things were bleak, when the people hadn't heard of, from God in centuries, when they wondered whether or not God would keep his promises, there was a priest named Zechariah who was faithful, and God was going to come with a message for him. And you could be in circumstances and situations where you wonder, where, where is God? In the days that we live in, when things are this bad, when things are this corrupt, is God still who he says he is, and will he still keep his promises? And the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist reminds us that even in the days of Herod, God was on the move. God was fulfilling his promises. God was working out his plans and purposes according to his will. And so that ought to bring us encouragement this morning. The second thing that I want us to look at in coming in verse 14. We touched on this a little bit, but I want to dive in further. In verse 14, when the angel is telling Zechariah about his son named John, here's, here's verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Why this joy? Why so much joy over the person of John the Baptist? Why would he bring Zechariah and Elizabeth joy, and why would many people rejoice at the coming of John the Baptist? Well, this this brothers and sisters, ties in all of the gospel and helps us remember what we are truly celebrating at this time of year. You see, it's not simply that people were excited that this elderly, childless couple finally had a baby. There's more to it than that, much more to it than that. You see, what, what was John's role? Remember, John was the forerunner. He was the one, he, he was not the light, but he was sent to point to the light. He said, there's a light coming. John was the one who, who came with this message of repentance, and he's saying, hey, prepare the way of the Lord. That you, you need to turn from your sins. You need to, salvation is drawing near. What was John doing? He was the one who said, it's over. The waiting is over. God is near. He's coming near to us. Salvation is breaking in. Do you realize how good this is? Imagine to be in that day. The, excuse me. <laughs> the Jewish people for centuries had been waiting again to hear from God. They had all of the Old Testament promises. They knew that a Messiah was coming. They knew that a rescuer. They were waiting for deliverance. And for centuries, they had heard nothing, no fresh revelation from God. Would God still keep his promises? They were living under Roman rule, under a corrupt king, under Herod, who wasn't a nice guy. And what is, what is God doing with the arrival of John the Baptist? You see, John comes to say, he's on his way, he's coming Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John showed up on the scene to say, God is here and he's about to do something. He's about to bring salvation. That's what would bring joy and rejoicing. 
When you get to day three of your book this week, Christopher Ashe says it this way, Here is a son who will bring overflowing joy to men and women throughout the land. Why? It's not just that everybody is happy that this long childless couple now has a fine strong son. It is far deeper than that. He will do what God loves to do. God loves to bring people home. So this spirit-filled man will bring people home. John came to announce salvation, to say that Jesus is on his way. And for the people, this was relief. They, they had been waiting. They had been longing for Christ's coming. So for our final point of application, let, let me say it this way to you. How, how about you? How do you respond to Christ's first coming? How do you respond to the news that salvation has come in the baby, in the, in, the, in the form of a baby, in the person of Jesus Christ? You see, Jesus came because all of the Old Testament sacrificial system, all of the rituals, all of the sacrifices, it, it, it could not provide an eternal once-for-all sacrifice as a means of relationship with God. We all, as human beings, by our sin, are separated from a righteous and holy God. Because he is just and righteous, he sets the standard for how life works. And by our own sin, we choose our own way and reject him. And that sin separates us from God. And we need a way of being brought near. We need a way of experiencing God's presence and closeness and relationship with him. And going to church won't give us that relationship. Lighting Advent candles won't give us that relationship. Celebrating the true meaning of Christmas won't give us that relationship. It's only a relationship through the person of Jesus Christ. It's only by confessing our sins and repenting of them and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation that we can find eternal life and forgiveness and hope. And that's why Jesus came, was to provide a once-for-all sacrifice. When Zechariah heard the news that God would finally bring salvation to the people, that he would have a son, there was some mixed unbelief in his heart. Mary, excuse me, Elizabeth, was rejoicing because God had finally heard her. God had come near to her. The people of Israel by and large, rejected John's message. Some turned, some repented, some found salvation, but by and large, most of the people rejected Christ and said, no, that's not the Messiah and the king that we're looking for. They were expecting a conquering king and weren't willing to submit to a suffering savior. So how will you respond this morning as you are here, as you go through this Advent season? Do you, do you realize that you are a sinner in need of Christ for salvation? I hope that you are not trusting anything for salvation other than Christ's finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Coming to church is, is not good enough. Your parents' faith and traditions that perhaps you participated in does not make you a Christian. Celebrating Christmas and coming to church extra does not make you a Christian in that sense. The only thing that provides salvation is a relationship with Jesus Christ and a turning from sins and trusting in Christ's finished work. So how, how will you respond? Will you turn to Christ, turn from your sins, and trust in Christ for salvation? You see, as a church, as a people, believer, let me encourage you. This announcement to Zechariah is good news for us as well. 
because we, we don't just celebrate the fact that Christ came. Yes, we're in the season of Advent where we are remembering Christ's first Advent, but we are also waiting for his second coming. We're remembering the fact that Christ will return again. The first time he came as suffering servant, this time he will come as conquering king. He will come as judge, which has eternal ramifications for everyone listening. Are you ready, prepared to meet that judge? And are you encouraged, believer, Go through this Advent season and, and, and fight against the noise of Hallmark Christmas. And for all, of all men, I love Hallmark Christmas probably more than a lot of average guys. I'm getting a couple glares from guys. That's okay. Hallmark Christmas is not bad. Fight against it, though. Re reshape it. Help it. Let it remind you of what we're really celebrating at this moment, Right? Uh, we're really celebrating the fact that Christ came once again, came once. He will come again. He came to die, and it's a hope, and we wait for that, and it shapes our life. It, it, it shapes the way we spend our time, effort, and energies. In the introduction, Christopher Ashe says this, and we reflect, as we reflect on the Jesus who came as a baby all those centuries ago, let us never forget that we are waiting, longing, yearning, praying for that great day when he will return. For the Jesus whom Luke reveals to us at the start of this gospel is the same, this same Jesus who will come back in glory. The more deeply we understand him in his first advent, the more passionately we shall long for his return when we shall see him face to face, and the more joyfully we will celebrate his arrival at the first Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are grateful that you came to us once in the person of Jesus Christ. We're longing for the day when you come again. We have this blessed hope, the glorious appearing of Christ. Lord, as a people, would, would, we go, would you help us go through these next week, not just going through the motions, not just thinking about the Hallmark celebrations, not even just thinking about Christ's first coming, but also remembering his second coming. We want to see families united. We want to see hearts turned to righteousness. We want to see relationships made right through the person of Jesus Christ because we know that you're coming back and you will return as judge and we will be accountable to you. May we be spending our efforts in the right places in these days. May we be longing and yearning for your return, ever mindful of what you accomplish on that day. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.